as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, a writer, or whatever it is, you will be fed with the emotions of the world you live in at the time, and it will come out somehow creatively. Even if you ignore it, it's still going to come out, I think. So uh, definitely horror movies in general, and possibly also monsters more specifically, uh, are a product of their world. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror star creators. The terror begins right after this. Norwegian writer-director Andre Overdahl burst onto the international film scene with 2010's sleeper hit Troll Hunter, one of the great horror comedies of recent times. Andre's next film was The Autopsy of Jane Doe, a supremely creepy horror film that every fan of the genre should see. Jane Doe caught the eye of Guillermo del Toro, who recruited Andre to direct his production of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Andre is now adapting Stephen King's novel The Long Walk for the screen. He sat down with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga to explain how he constructs his frightening films. What's the appeal of the horror genre to you as a filmmaker? What do you like about it? What I love about the horror genre is that there is some kind of a layer of dread, for lack of a better word, that is on top of everything that you do, that is like Whatever the film is, it's, it has to have that as well. And that's intangible. It's like if, you, if you're able to put that in a movie, then it's something that, I don't know, is unique to the horror genre, I think. And the horror genre is communicating with the audience in such a visceral way. The audience is, you know, jumping or they're feeling, they're leaning in, they're, doing, they're reacting physically. And that is very rewarding, both when you shoot, planning for that, thinking about it, and also, obviously, watching it in a theater with an audience, if the movie works, it's, it's amazing to watch the audience, you know, scream or react physically. Death is ever-present in a horror film, right? There's an existential dread that propels it forward. Yeah, it's always high stakes in a horror film. I mean, there is always death, as you say. There's always li a life-and-death experience of some kind in a horror film. And that naturally gives intensity, and it gives a very human situation that we can all relate to. I mean, death is ever-present. As a director, are there certain things you're able to do in the horror genre that are unique to it, or at least that you enjoy the most? 
I mean, I, jo- I love creating suspense. I love building a scene piece by piece by piece, by edits, by not do using edits, by whatever the tools are. And it, horror lets me use every tool in this cinematic toolbox. And from, you know, from the sound can tell a story and you can use silence. You can, anticipation is obviously the biggest thing of it all, of everything. And I, I think that is it's so much fun. It feels like a puzzle that you're constructing. It's almost like a symphony to make a movie. It's almost like so many pieces. And obviously we have so many crafts involved in making a movie. So it's, I don't know, it's just an amazing experience. I'm lucky to be able to do it. Your three features all have monsters in them. What's the appeal of movie monsters? Mm. Monsters are different things to different people, obviously. Some people are afraid of that huge, you know, ugly monster. And some people are afraid of the existential monster, the political monster, the whatever it is. It's, there are so many different things. And I think there is a lot to be said for keeping the monster in the darkness for, you know, for a long time. But at a certain point, you have to reveal what the antagonist is or what the creature is. And then it better be interesting. <laughs> Which leads me to Troll Hunter. Briefly, what's the plot of Troll Hunter? Um, it's a student documentary team that is somehow, weirdly enough, able to follow a guy who turns out to be protecting Norway from these enormous, monstrous trolls. And they, through the documentary and through the experience, they reveal this world that nobody knew existed that's been kept secret through a governmental uh, system. And uh, that's kind of the basic concept. What makes Trollhunter a very Norwegian film? Uh, Trollhunter is very cultural specific, I think, for Norway. I mean, it's so much our vision of trolls. Whenever I see trolls in other movies, other cultures, they're different than what we call trolls. So that's definitely one thing. Obviously, the nature is very Norwegian. And there's something about the sarcastic attitude of the characters, the kind of droll sense of humor about communal worker and his, you know, perils of the day. You know, he's not very impressed by uh, having to deal with trolls. He's, it's just a night job. You know? Yeah, he's over it, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Was getting the balance of the dry humor while selling the trolls as a serious threat difficult to achieve? I mean, it was inherent in the whole concept for me that it had to be a documentary because for two big reasons. The first reason is that it has to be absurd. The fact that these trolls are pretending that they're real and that they're alive, the more real we can make that than doing it as a documentary, the more absurd the situation is going to be. So for humor, it was really helpful. And the other thing is, obviously, we we were on a low budget comparatively to the US or just a few million dollars. And we had to be able to turn the camera away and run away from the troll when we couldn't afford having more troll shots. (laughs) Were you surprised the film wound up being so successful outside of Norway? It was an amazing experience to see how it was received uh, worldwide because I wasn't, I mean, I was hoping that it would, in a way, because it's a monster movie, that some people would uh, take it in. But I remember our very first screening of the film was in Texas at Fantastic Fest. And it was just like, we were terrified because what if the audience here doesn't understand anything of the humor of our, what this is culturally, because it was so geared, so many inside jokes for Norwegians, but they loved it. They just ate it up and it was, and they understood the humor. I remember people were laughing at the right moments and it was like, wow, okay. It translates culturally. That's wonderful. How did you develop the look of the trolls in the film? Uh, all the trolls in Troll Hunter are based on drawings from a book that was written in the 1800s. And uh, the drawings are iconic to Norwegians. 
It's like our image of what a troll is, and they're usually huge and could have three heads. They could have nine heads. They could have. They could be huge as mountains and really scary. And it's really some of the drawings are really dark and sinister. To me, the movie had to really capture those trolls because we were going to do so much else with them. We were going to make the audience hear them for the first time, watch the move, watch that has never been done in Norway before. So it was very important to nail that specific thing, the look. So we stuck very closely with the design from those drawings. They are as famous as the stories in Norway. And then we had designers who made maquettes for our specific creatures, and they drew. We made we did a lot of work to find the right ones, and also digitally, obviously, which they ended up being. I saw a little featurette about how you created that great scene where the bridge troll grabs the troll hunter and tosses him around, and it was an interesting blend of practical and VFX. That's an ongoing debate. Everybody I talk to has a position on practical versus computer-generated effects. My experience with visual effects versus practical effects is that it should actually be based in practical effects. The VFX companies like it. It's great for being on set to actually start with something. It might not be fully formed in a way. It could also still be a work in progress even. But just so it's actually in the scene, it's lit by the natural light, it's interacting with the characters and the textures are going to be real. So then the VFX companies can then work with that rather than start from scratch. So there is something really unique about having something for real, for sure. And it's something tangible about it. And if you watch older movies like The Thing or even Gremlins or E.T. or, you know, they were physical and it feels more real. How much of that did you do in the autopsy of Jane Doe? On Jane Doe, we had Olwen Kelly, who obviously plays Jane Doe. She was there for most of the shoot. And we would only every now and then replace her with a... a doll that was made to look like her and for one fire scene we had a black doll and we had uh, something else I wonder if we had a green doll that we used to just for special effects reasons only for the moments when we're really digging into her are we using uh, prosthetics mostly it's her with uh, layers of stuff on even when we're when we were cutting her up with a knife it was her with a layer of metal between her and the knife in a way it all looks and feels very real in that movie. Yeah, but we did do a lot of uh, VFX. Like, you know, we allowed her to blink throughout the whole show. So uh, when we're looking at the dailies, you know, she's lying there blinking. So all that had to be removed. And there are, it's incredible when we looked at the big screen to see how many little twitches and how many little things the body does that we had to clean up afterwards with CGI. Uh, you stare at a hand and suddenly there is some little movement. And when up on a big screen, it looks, uh, it's big. So those little fixes aren't the obvious kind of computer effects. There are things that people won't notice that sell the illusion. I mean, she really looks like a corpse. Yeah, I mean, uh, she was amazing at lying there still and doing, and we were trying to tell a story with how she was, what position she was lying in. So through the movie, it's like we're telling a story with vulnerability, power, all kinds of stuff like that, so that you feel we're trying to use her facial expressions that come with that, with her mouth open, closed, how we film her specifically and what angle, low angle, high angle. Because at the end, she looks pretty self-satisfied. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do before you made Troll Hunter? Um, I mean, I grew up making films with my friends and neighbors for you know, a few years, and then I went to film school in California. 
And after I got a bachelor here, I uh, went back home and I directed commercials for 10 years and a couple short films and then Troll Hunter, yeah. Coming out of the world of commercials, do you generally storyboard everything? I plan the movie extreme, everything very carefully, but not necessarily by storyboards because I do love creating the image with what I have in front of me, but I will know exactly what kind of image I'm looking for. It's going to be a low angle, it's going to be a high angle, it's going to be this, it's going to be a two shot, a three shot or whatever, because the construction of the movie, I need to plan that so carefully. When are we on a close-up? When are we on a wide shot? Every little decision is deliberate. But storyboarding itself is a very boring process to me. <laughs> so I've kind of, you know, only for special effects scenes do we really storyboard. We, we plan with overheads, like plan views, and we plan with shot lists and, you know, those basic tools. All these films seem very planned out, but Autopsy of Jane Doe is clearly a film that has a very calculated look and style to it. So first, um, tell me a little brief synopsis of the plot of that film. <sighs> the Autopsy of Jane Doe is about uh, the corpse of a young woman that is found in a basement in a house, and they cannot fathom how she got there and what happened to her. And they bring her into a coroner, and the father and son, who runs that place, uh, they start trying to figure it out, and they, it just gets weirder and weirder the further into the process they get. It's beautifully directed, but it's also the acting in the film is, you know, if you could talk about the importance of the actors that you got for those roles and what they gave to it. As with any movie, uh, costing is 90% of the job, in a way. It's um, like, I don't know, somebody said that. And it's um, to have Brian Cox and Emil Hirsch Two amazing actors of their generations play those parts was was a you know gift to the movie. They bring so much gravitas. They bring so much um, reality to the parts. They you really believe them. They're so in tune with the characters and how to project it in a natural way. And sometimes we didn't need to talk about it because they were just like they just nail it. They're so experienced. They're so good. So for a fresh director that I was, it was a gift to work with them. How did you come into Jane Doe? What were you looking for at that point? Um, after Troll Hunter, I spent a couple of years trying to figure out what to do next and discussing several movies in Hollywood and some stuff at home in Norway. And eventually the script for Jane Doe came on my email and I just loved it. It was terrifying. The script was so terrifying. And I was really looking for a movie that could be the opposite of what Troll Hunter was. Because Troll Hunter comes off as out of control in a way. Like, there is no director. And that was a big part of what I had to do on Troll Hunter was to step back and not direct. Well, that's what I had to at least give the impression of. While I wanted to make a real movie, in a way, if you can call it that, where I control everything. And the autopsy of Jane Doe, with its setting and with its sense of dread and horror and building momentum and all the mysteries and all the revelations and everything, it was such a joy to, to be able to piece that together. It was just the kind of movie I was looking for. And I think, no, I was just really lucky to be the one who ended up directing that film. Tell me a little about the importance of the setting and how, as far as establishing the atmosphere, what kind of lens choices you used, for instance. Yeah, my big thing with Jane Doe and what I pitched it when I, they chose me as a director was, I want to make a beautiful film about an autopsy. I want it to be elegant. I want it to be very careful with how we shoot it. But at the same time, we have to be direct. We have to show this. We have to make the audience lean in and want to see something that they don't really want to see. <laughs> you know, they don't want to look into her body parts, but they still need to do it because the story is so compelling. So to create that energy was a big part of it. On the autopsy agenda, we created a set based on 
the script. So we walk through the script in our heads. They're going to go over there in that scene. And then there has to be a door to the right. There has to be a door to the left. And the, that room has to be there. And then somehow there became a plan view of what that place looked like. And then another very important thing to me was that it had to feel very comfortable. It had to feel warm and inviting and homely, like it was their home. I mean, their home is literally on top of it. But then at a certain point, it needed to twist and turn hostile. So that was a, a big thing is how do you do that? How do you change, make that comfortable space hostile at, a, at basically at the midpoint of the movie? Another part we did was we had a specific set of lenses we used for the first half of the movie. Then we changed over to another set of lenses for the second half of the movie. And also, of course, we had a huge lighting change. We had the way they related to the environment uh, was different, the actors. And, you know, we tried to use all the elements that we could. And also the, the angles got more skewed and things like that. I always shoot in wide lenses because I think on an amorphic or on uh, 185 or whatever it is, it is 40 millimeter to 18 is the range regardless for me and for my DOP. We kind of found that out together. For the beginning of the film, we stayed in the 28 to 40, maybe going to 50 on the occasional shot. And uh, I also, one big inspiration for the movie is also the movie Seven, which is a lot of scenes with two people walking around in rooms with a corpse in the middle. And the way they shot it was really inspiring, uh, really interesting with the low angles and with the, the way they shoot objects and the way the lens choices. And we stayed in that basic world. But for the second half of the movie, we went wider to 21, 24, and then at the longest, 35. As I said, I was watching again last night, and that's something I was paying particular attention. You know, the first time you watch it, you're just like more concentrating on the fact that it's absolutely terrifying. So something I rarely say about having seen an awfully lot of horror films, but that is one intense movie. And then the second time was mostly like, oh, it's going really wide and tight in this. <laughs> that's, that's neat. And it's all those things, obviously, that people take in subconsciously but don't necessarily notice when they're watching a picture. Yeah, and I really believe the audience takes in things subconsciously. And you, as a filmmaker, it's your job and your joy to, uh, to be able to, you know, help them get there. What's the importance of sound design in the autopsy of Jane Doe? Um, I mean... In Jane Doe, we, you know, silence is a big thing so that every sound that is there becomes a piece of storytelling. A tool that I was very obsessed with, on specifically on that movie, we also did it on Trial Hunter, but that was more of organic for the movie, but here it was more like a deliberate director's choice, is to always, with every edit, you break the sound so that it never flows. It always, you'll, you should feel the cut to a different perspective. We cut close to the fridges where all the bodies are. We cut away, we cut further back in the room and the humming, for example, from these fridges should change. So it's always unsettling. You never get to relax in a way. These are extremely subtle things. They don't scream at you. But I believe that over the sustained length of uh, 90 minutes or more of a movie, it will be part of that feeling of dread. Does Jane Doe force a rethinking of the archetype of the villainous witch? Uh, I mean, what was so fascinating was that at the center of the movie, you have a person who is the least likely to be the, the demon of the movie, to be the antagonist of the movie. She's dead, 
they're tearing her apart and they're like proving she cannot do anything. She's absolutely dead. And to have that as a centerpiece was, uh, was a wonderful twist to an antagonist in a movie. It seems like the more they tear into her, the more she starts tearing them apart. Yeah, and she uses psychology in a way to do it, to tear them apart. There's this trope of witches being evil demons, but in this case it seems to be about the lingering after effects of violence and abuse in the innocent. Oh, definitely. I mean, at the core, it's, Jane Doe is kind of a revenge film, I would say, and uh, it definitely goes to the abuse and the horrors that she had gone through. I mean, what happened to her is only indicated through what they're seeing that must have been done to her. It seems to have been some kind of a ritualistic killing. And they seem to have been doing all these kind of more or less pagan ritual horrors to her by putting things in her body and closing it up. And yeah. It also seems that she may not have been a witch, but they turned her into a witch. Yeah, they kind of created the monster. Critic Amy Beddoes argues that Jane Doe comments on the ways in which a woman can experience many forms of violence in her lifetime, which leaves scars that don't appear in her external body. Do you think this film reflects that? I mean, that's, a, that's kind of a wonderful take on it. Yeah, it's internal scars. They could just as well be mental or emotional in, in more in a real setting. It's definitely an interesting thought. Do witches have a place in Norwegian culture? We had our own witch trials uh, in Norway. They're horrible, horrific. I have a big book about it with all the, uh, that is, um, with with all the documents from the trials themselves. And they were done year, I mean, hundreds of years before uh, the Salem witch trials and much more horrible. Um, So definitely there is a lot of lore there to mine. More horrible than the stuff that happens to Jane Doe and the autopsy of Jane Doe? I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Jane Doe is pretty, pretty bad what happens to her. Yeah. So let's talk about scary stories to tell in the dark. First, briefly, what's the plot of this movie based on books that did not have a plot? Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult to pitch the movie, but I mean, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is really a movie uh, making those three books come alive, you know, in uh, this little town where uh, there's a haunted house and these kids are on Halloween night. They're kind of on a dare going into the house. They find a book that is they shouldn't bring out of the house and opens up a world of horror for themselves, and they're definitely, yeah. Who is the intended audience for scary stories versus the audience for Jane Doe, which I think it's safe to say was meant for adults? Yeah, Jane Doe was for adults, and that was for teenagers. I mean, we were going directly for a PG-13 rating, and we got it. And my hope, and Guillermo's hope, was always to make a movie that was a gateway to horror for young people. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what we're hoping the movie will be eventually. What was it like seeing that with an audience? That's the thing. It's so great to see horror movies with an audience. You know, they, they break out on the moments that you'd kind of hope for, but like there is another moment in the film where there is this kid who's eating a body object 
And I remember people were screaming in the theater on almost every theater I've been to. So it's, um, it's so rewarding to see that they're reacting so viscerally to the uh, experience. How is Scary Stories a monster movie? Well, I think it's almost more a monster movie than I've uh, ever made before because it has all these amazing creatures that Stephen Gamal drew for the books. And we just really made sure that what we put in a movie was that. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel here. We wanted to make sure that we put those characters, made those come alive. And um, those creatures are so scary, even on the page, just as drawings, they're frightening as hell. And uh, it was a daunting task to make those come alive and get them across in the same frightening way that, uh, that they were drawn. What were the most difficult monsters to bring to life? I mean, the jangly man was really tough because he was going to be so twisty and body parts and coming together and doing all this and that. So the combination of real effects, an amazing contortionist, and for moments, some digital enhancements, and just to, the, you know, the, to create uh, I, what we were hoping for, an iconic face and design and, uh, and then make that come alive. And there's a lot of challenges to that. Um, that was definitely a difficult one. Harold, uh, you know, is so iconic that uh, we, we couldn't miss that one. And uh, the pale lady, is, she's so innocent in a way. She's so benign that when you see her and she's just shuffling along and she's doing absolutely nothing. So we had to make that terrifying. So we devised this scene where, you know, where she's coming from all directions and it gets more and more paranoid the whole moment uh, as the character is discovering that he has no way to escape her. And it became just this kind of uh, how to make the shuffling old lady scary. <laughs> Does Guillermo have a team of monster designers he brought in to work on this with you? And how was that relationship and what was the process? No, I was just... You know, obviously, I'm so lucky to have the master of monsters near me making this movie. And he obviously has so much knowledge himself that it's, you know, mind-blowing. And then he knows all the right people. He, he okay, the, you know, Mike Hill is going to do that. Norman Cabrera is going to do that character. And we're going to get Spectrum Motion to do this. And we're going to get the VFX company to, uh, Mr. X, to help do this and that, like they did on Shape of Water. And it was all like the combination of the best people in the world to do this. So I was just a lucky guy in the middle of all that. Yeah. Was he happy with the monsters? Oh, yeah, he loves them. Yeah, oh, he was very happy. Why was election night 1968 a good night in which to set the film? Uh, Guillermo and the writers, the Hageman brothers, they wanted to put it at Halloween 1968. And that was fantastic. What happens is that you have the story takes place over about five days. And then you land basically on election night, five days after. And uh, that just became like a natural ending point. And also, in addition, you know, it's a monster movie and that's a political potential monster in some people's eyes. And it just felt like, let's just do it. Yeah. You've seen Shampoo? <laughs> Actually, I have not seen Shampoo. It's, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, but yeah. it also ends on election night. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. 1968. Yeah. That's Are you the... serious? Oh, wow. No, yeah, I that's can... Shampoo's unhappy ending. Yes. Oh, my God. I got to see that now. I'm so curious to see how that was done. Yeah. It's kind of unusual for a female teenage horror buff to be the protagonist of a movie. You know, Guillermo and the Hegemans, obviously, they wrote the script and they created that character on the page. And I think that, you know, a lot of this comes from Guillermo's mind and 
maybe there is a lot of him in that character. I'm not sure. A horror buff. You know, I just fell in love with the character on the page. I thought she was so brilliant. To have uh, somebody, we just be open about it. She loves this stuff. It's Halloween night. And um, sometimes it's a boy's thing to be preoccupied with that kind of stuff. And then to create a girl who was into it was also an interesting thing. And we kind of just ignored the gender thing. We just made a character out of it. And then you have Zoe Coletti who did it. I remember her audition was just like the most amazing thing. So. I imagine the hardest thing about that scene was getting the right clearances for the posters. Yeah, yeah no, that was uh, clearing stuff like that. It was posters and uh, movies and cultural references. It's a whole thing in a period movie, that's for sure. Yeah. How much went into balancing making the movie friendly to a young audience, but still horrifying? Uh, did you have to do a lot of test screenings to see how it played, or was it just something you felt? I mean, we did a couple of test screenings, just, but that's more to understand the movie, if it works. Does it, is it scary? Is it this, is it that? Not really to gauge the age range. That's a secondary thing that happens. You kind of also understand who it works for and who it doesn't work for. But generally, I believe that on PG-13 or on any age thing, actually, uh, you can be as scary as you want. There are specific parameters that you cannot uh, go over with blood and guts and horrific things. But to feel emotionally stressed out in a theater, and that can work for a 13-year-old as much as... Uh, so we, our idea was just, let's just make it as scary as we can, but never go nasty with it. It was never meant to be a nasty film. It was always meant to be a relatively friendly film, but thrilling. Do you have a favorite monster in scary stories? I mean, it keeps varying uh, which monster I like the most. I mean, of course, Harold is very iconic. Uh, I think the Jangly Man is really clever. It's a really unique and interesting character who just comes together out of body parts and is just jangly. (laughs) And uh, the Pay Lady, she's so, uh, I don't know, unique in a way. Uh, I love them all. I can't really say. It's like babies, you know, you can't really say which one is your favorite. Is the film not just about monsters, but about how people can turn each other into monsters? Yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that is the core of the movie to a degree, is that Sarabella's family turned her into the monster she is. And in a way, there is a connected tissue to Jane Doe there. Growing up, did you have any favorite monsters or favorite monster movies? I mean, I love The Thing. You can call a shark a monster. I love Jaws, obviously. Uh, Alien. I mean, who, I mean, I grew up watching all these classics. And uh, obviously, when Jurassic Park came out, I was about 20. But that movie made a huge impact. Even though I was more or less an adult at that point, it was awe-inspiring to see the dinosaurs come alive. What place does that movie hold in the monster movie Pantheon? Oh, uh, that's more a question for a film historian, but... Uh, <laughs> well, in your personal Pantheon, what makes that movie exceptional? Uh, the thing is just so filled with dread, and it's just so filled with tension and building uh, building tension. And it's just... Uh, you just know something is terribly wrong with that dog, and, with, uh, and you're just watching these people in this really closed environment that they can't get out of. And you just know this is going to go to hell. And it's just that enormous feeling of dread that that movie contains is, uh, is a miracle. And then you have these unique, creative monsters or monstrous visions of 
creatures or whatever you want to call them that I think we've never seen the likes of in movies before or after. It's just, it's just one of those lightning in a bottle kind of movies. And with Alien, the first Alien, what gives that film its special power? Um, again, it's a lot of the same as the thing. Those two movies have are, to me, a little bit brother-sister movies because they're both dealing with being stuck in a situation with a monster that you don't understand. The, the You can't possibly grasp what it is until you slowly discover how horrific it is. I, that's something I love about these horror movies is the sense of discovery. Also with uh, one of my favorite movies, The Omen, it's also the enormous puzzle and discovering how you get there that is, um, that is just so powerful. I think all these movies in a way have that on a small or a big scale. You could say that element of claustrophobia unites Alien and The Thing and the autopsy of Jane Doe. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's something I love about Jane Doe as well. And the screenplay was so filled with discoveries and so filled with dread and all that, all that stuff that I love in all these movies. So it was all on the page. Ian and Richard, Richard's script, that was really, uh, I think, a masterpiece screenplay. Are monsters uniquely adaptable to any social anxiety? I mean, it seems to be connected. I mean, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, all these movies have clearly resonated with their times and the fears that are in society then. And generally, it seems horror movies have a tendency to reflect the times, whether you want it or not, whether you plan for it or not, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, or a writer, or whatever it is, you will be fed with the emotions of the world you live in at the time, and it will come out somehow creatively. Even if you ignore it, it's still going to come out, I think. So uh, definitely horror movies in general and possibly also monsters more specifically uh, are a product of their world. How do you motivate actors when they're acting against something supernatural, like something that isn't actually there? Um, well, on two of my movies, Jane Doe and Scary Stories, we had really everything there uh, in front of them so they could really actually react to what is going on. They never had to act against nothing. On Trollhunter, we had, that was CGI, uh, CG characters, the, the trolls. So they had to do it. And it's about engaging with emotionally with a situation that could be similar or you kind of, it's one thing is the physical aspect where, where are you looking? You know, that's very simple. But it's also, you know, I have to walk them through the scene. This, this huge troll is going to come running at this pace so you guys have to, and I, I will cue you guys on when you have to turn, run, da, da, da. It becomes very practical. And then they have to make it real with their performance. They have to make that fear come across or the, whatever it is there. So you have to have good actors regardless. They have to come with an, an emotional instinct, which they're cast to for in a way. That's why we like them. That's why we chose them, because we, they are able to portray that. But they have to come with an emotional understanding of how to portray a scene in any case, regardless what scene it is, whether it's a drama or the actor has to be able to uh, experience emotionally what's going on, whether it's a monster here or, a, you know, some middle of a divorce, whatever it is. Yeah. Do you shoot a lot of coverage or do you have it all cut in your head Hitchcock style? Uh, it depends. If I'm very confident in a moment that this can be done in exactly this way and that we're going to shoot it that way, then we do it that way. Like There are certain, absolutely tons of scenes where you only have very base, very simple coverage. That is, you don't do it from any other angle. 
But most of the time, I'm very obsessed with the edit. I'm very obsessed with where the camera is at every stage in the script, at every, every line, every movement, every this, every that. And that has to somehow, sometimes it's great to have one camera angle that covers everything. But a lot of times you want to shoot suddenly from behind people just to create a feeling of being observed from behind on that specific line or there. And that has to be accounted for in the shot list. And uh, so then coverage becomes necessary, but it's not necessarily coverage. It is storytelling to me. It, coverage has almost like a negative connotation where you're just shooting it from different angles, but it has to be really carefully planned. All of that is about establishing point of view, which I think is a real strength of your directing style. Jane Doe in particular, it's like you're in those two men's heads, mostly Mill Hirsch's head. When you think of well-constructed films, what directors do you admire? Yeah, I mean, there are so many amazing directors, but I'm, you know, I've been brought up on the greats of Hollywood from my generation in a way, from when I grew up. And there is no doubt that Steven Spielberg is number one. Uh, I would say also in modern times, it's David Fincher is a big inspiration. Kubrick was amazing. I love Orson Welles. Hitchcock, obviously, I mean, amazing filmmaker. Do you show films or paintings to your crew before you start shooting a movie? No, I don't actually. I don't have any rituals like that, or I don't have, I don't like referencing other films. I'm terrified of it. So I avoid it as much as I can. There are obviously moments between the DOP and myself and maybe the production designer and, you know, where we have to talk about certain other movies, like Seven, we had to talk about for Jane Doe, but we never really watched it. And I, like, I remember when doing Trollhunter, I avoided Blair Witch Project like a plague because I was terrified of even going into that, even though I knew that the film was going to be, you know, it's going to be in the same, we're in the woods, we're running around with the camera. We're going to do that anyway. We don't need to watch Blair Witch Project to know how to do that. We saw that movie a decade ago. So also on the, like on the next movie I'm doing now called The Long Walk, it's not really looking for other movies. We're just focusing on our movie and how to tell that. It's really interesting talking to different directors about this because there's no one way. Like some people, like Quentin Tarantino, will screen new movies every night. No, that's a, it's a fantastic thing. I mean, it's just different. Uh, yeah. Do you enjoy horror movies? And are there some things that you won't watch? I won't watch Eli Roth's movies. <laughs> oh, no, that was a joke. No, I mean, that I, I, uh, those are terrifying. I, visceral horror like that, like uh, his movies, are so intense to me. I love a haunted house movie. I love scary movies, a more like a playful level. And I think I'm trying to do that myself to create playful horror movies, whether it's for adults or it's young people. It, there should be a sense of humor about the way it's told, even though it's not necessarily funny. There's a... Can family-friendly horror be as subversive as a full-on crazy bloody horror movie? If it can be what? Can it be as subversive? You almost have to explain what, that word, subversive. I suppose challenging social mores or challenging the existing order of things, which is often what horror movies do. Sometimes they're an exploration of the id, and sometimes they look at issues of race and class, like Get Out being a prime example. I mean, I, I, think, it, I think the rating doesn't really have anything to do with what stories you tell and how you impact people. I think the rating is, to me, a very technical thing. There are certain things you just can't do. The rest is free game, in a way. Whether you want to tell something that a 13-year-old can relate to, are, I, I think there are tons of horror movies that are really hitting a young audience on what they're experiencing today. And 
whether it's mobile phones or it's apps or it's connecting, it's scary stuff that can happen to kids today. And uh, I, I think uh, even a period movie like uh, Scary Stories, I think there is a lot of relatable uh, subject matter for, for kids there about, about the power of social media this, and the power of rumors and being bad to each other in that way, back talk, uh, talking behind people's backs. And that's a constant thing that just keeps playing in people's worlds. Just with different means of distribution. Yeah, exactly. And that was our interview with the affable Andre Overdahl. Next time, the one and only Roger Corman. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Zanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror and Cut. Mm-hmm.